you can listen to The Front on your smart speaker every morning. To hear the latest episode, just say, play the news from The Australian. From The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Wednesday, October 25. Anthony Albanese is pledging to pump an additional $2 billion into the nation's critical minerals industry. The government says it's about getting an edge in the clean energy transition, thanks to the huge global demand for critical minerals, which are used in defence, tech and power generation products. The Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council is seeking sweeping new powers that would allow so-called culture cops to enter private properties without permission. They say the current law doesn't go far enough to protect cultural heritage in private spaces like farms and homes. Two of the more than 200 hostages being held captive by Hamas in Gaza have been freed. The two elderly women were reunited with relatives almost three weeks after Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel. Civilian casualties are mounting in Gaza, and in Israel, fears are growing for the hostages who are still held prisoner. In today's episode, we hear from a young woman desperate to find out if her parents are alive. A young woman screaming in terror as she's snatched from a besieged music festival by men with automatic weapons. Elderly people paraded through the streets of Gaza. Tiny children captured and murdered. For weeks now, Israeli troops and civilians have been taken hostage by the militant group Hamas as the Middle East teeters on the edge of all-out war. Now, Hamas is claiming it has over 200 Israeli and foreign hostages in its captivity. How does Israel ensure hostages return safely to their families? It's a nightmare that became a terrifying reality for Ella Ben-Ami in the first days of the conflict. Ella lives in the Kibbutz Beri, a short distance from the Gaza border. Ella Ben-Ami is a 23-year-old woman and she's got a remarkable story of survival from her kibbutz Beri, which was stormed by the Hamas terrorists on October 7. Yoni Bashan is the Australian's correspondent in Israel. But compounding factor to her story is that her two parents, who were living with her separately on the kibbutz, their names are Ohad and Raz, they were both taken by the Hamas terrorists and were removed to Gaza, where they currently remain. As it stands, she's unaware of their status, their health. Her mother has significant health issues that require life-saving medicines. She doesn't have access to them. And Ella's primary concern is amplifying to the world the fact that without those medicines, she's very unlikely to survive. It's been two weeks since she's had any type of medical care in relation to her illness. And her greatest fear right now is that she may never see her parents again. An image of Ella's mother being taken away by Hamas militants has circulated on social media. She's wearing what looks like pyjamas, emblazoned with the Disney character Daisy Duck. But she's got no shoes on. So just to give you an idea of the paucity of information that some of the family members of hostages are receiving, Ella only discovered that photograph four days ago. 
the incident itself happened two weeks ago. So that was the first picture of her mother alive that she'd seen since the events of October 7. Two days on from Hamas launching a surprise attack on Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says this week's events will forever change the Middle East. As to the events of that day, Ella tells us that she woke up on Saturday morning at Kibbutz Beri around 6 or 6.30, and she woke up from the noise of an enormous barrage of Qassam rockets that were being launched from Gaza into Israel. What she did next was she went into the safe room in the home where she was living with her partner at the time. And there was a long pause. They thought that the conflict was over. And then approximately 20 to 30 minutes later, reports started emerging within the kibbutz of shooting that was occurring. And then within the next hour or so, there were some conversations with her parents who were in a different location, in a location, in fact, closer to the Gaza fence, her father was reporting hearing a large number of gunshots, some shouting in Arabic. He was relaying back to her that they were causing what he described as a mess in the neighborhood. And she told us that that's when everyone became aware that this wasn't just another skirmish with the residents living in Gaza. This was a very serious incident and something that was potentially unprecedented in the history of the kibbutz. And then there was an agonizing wait. Ella remained in her safe room for approximately the next 12 hours, remaining very quiet. She was there with her partner. Obviously, it was very hot. There was an imperative that everyone stay as silent as possible, conserve their phone batteries. There was no food. There was no water. There was nowhere for them to relieve themselves. The entire time they were hearing gunshots and fighting, often in very close proximity to where they were staying. And at about 10 o'clock in the morning, so that's about four hours after the fighting started, her father wrote a message to her saying he can hear them banging their way into the house, that is the terrorists, and at some point they broke into the safe room where he was sheltering. They then walked away for a moment. She describes the situation as they'd gone into the safe room and become quite frightened in a moment and then backed out of the safe room. He then texted her saying they've entered the safe room and then after that she didn't hear from him again. Images of Ella's father, Ohad, have also done the rounds, but the vision is small comfort for his family. The only photograph that she's seen of her father, Ohad, is uh, quite a well-known photo that was circulating on Israeli social media and which has since been publicised on the news. Here's a bit of a phone call that Ella made on that terrible morning to Israel's Channel 2 News, requesting help from her parents while she herself was under siege. It's a photograph of him being led out of his house by two Hamas terrorists, almost being rushed along a pathway. He's not fully clothed. Quite a distressing photo for anyone to see, and the last image that she'd seen of Ohad alive. It's the most important thing to us to say, and in general, that all the kidnap and all the war crimes that happened need to come to a solve, and we just really miss our parents. I mean, we just, (laughs) I don't know, we just want her to be with us. Ella's family lives in what's known as a kibbutz. Theirs is a short distance from Gaza, but these rural settlements are dotted all over Israel. 
Kibbutzes in Israel are generally small communities, often farming communities, where produce or livestock is kept. They're not enormous communities. Some of them can number in the low thousands. Others are in the low hundreds. And generally speaking, life there is described as rather idyllic. They're for people who enjoy a rural style of living instead of living in one of the main cities like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. People who live on kibbutzes are generally very community-minded. And within Israel itself, if you live here long enough, it becomes possible to be able to tell someone who's lived on a kibbutz from someone who's lived in the city. Not unlike living in Australia, where you can tell pretty quickly if someone's from the country. There's just a different mindset when you live in the rural parts, the regional parts, and whether you live, you know, in Martin Place or Bondi Beach. So, Yoni, they seem from the images that I've seen to be quite heavily fortified, and we've seen some vision of Hamas militants getting through the fortifications. Do you know, in the case of this kibbutz, how the militants got in and why the IDF, the Israeli military, took so long to get there to help these people? Generally speaking, the reason why the IDF took so long to get to these people is the same reason for Kibbutz Berry, for Nachal Oz, for Kfar Aza. It's the same for a large number of these kibbutzim. And the reason is because there were a large number of surprise attacks all occurring at the same time, all of them very complex. You can imagine a scenario where even if it was one kibbutz under attack, the IDF would need to go into that area without a full understanding of how many terrorists are in the vicinity, the precise weaponry that they're using. Securing that area just takes a very long time and it needs to be done by going house to house, all the while knowing that once you've cleared a room, there could still be someone emerging behind you, there could be people in front of you, again, an unknown quantity of terrorists in the area. And they enter these kibbutzim in much the same way between each one. Either they rush through the border fence once they were able to breach it, or they use the method of deploying paragliders to allow them to fly over the fence and descend into the kibbutzes. Those were generally the methods that we used to penetrate the Israeli security apparatus. And obviously there will come a time in the coming weeks and months where much introspection will be conducted as to how that was able to occur. You went to another kibbutz that had been devastated, Kafar Azar. Tell me about the scene that you found there. We saw a crumpled paraglider next to a Toyota utility that had been completely bombed out in a firefight with some of the Israeli military. The scenes were barely describable, and that's two weeks after the events had actually occurred themselves. Obviously, when we arrived, many of the corpses had been taken away, but one of the most striking features of being in a kibbutz like Faraza is that the smell of what transpired is heavy in the atmosphere. The smell of burnt tyres, the smell of a bombed out home, the smell of rotting food, the smell of dead animals, dead dogs in particular. There were soldiers who offered to take a contingent of us to see some of these dead animals, but a harrowing experience and very much one where even though a modest cleanup attempt had occurred since the events, you could very much understand the terror that had been inflicted on the residents of that community. Coming up, Israel's released footage of the October 7 attacks and of prisoner interrogations. What the vision shows and why Israel's releasing it now. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter. 
with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. On Tuesday morning, the Israeli Defence Force released a bundle of footage that's usually kept under wraps during conflicts like these. The first is vision taken by body cameras worn by Hamas militants during the October 7 invasion of Israel. Here's Yoni Bashan again. Well, that decision came about because, as anyone who engages with social media of any kind will know, there's a huge level of scepticism that has been pervading the internet since the events of October 7. And it would seem that no matter how many credible sources in Israel attest to the atrocities that occur, and no matter how much footage downloaded from the GoPros that were fitted to the Hamas fighters shows itself, there still seems to be a very large cohort of people online who are sceptical about the level of depravity that was inflicted on the people of these villages. Also released by the IDF was vision of their interrogation of Hamas fighters who were captured in the aftermath of the attack. In this clip, a man in a bloody T-shirt describes killing a dog and an unarmed man and setting houses on fire. The same man later describes shooting a woman and blasting into a safe room, and witnessing the murders of men, women and children. This seems like a very 21st century problem, Yoni. Well, I can't recall another time when a government has had to go to these lengths to satisfy a community of sceptics online that the atrocities that have occurred have actually occurred. And we know that they've occurred because there's ample evidence that has emerged from survivors, from the GoPro footage that was fitted to the Hamas terrorists, and from the victims themselves. The interrogation videos that normally a military or an intelligence operation would keep secret, these are not things generally for public consumption, have been released as well. What can we glean from them? There's actually a tremendous amount that can be gleaned from them. Some of the things that they've shed light on are particularly instructive. So, for example, one of the terrorists told an interrogator that whoever kidnaps a hostage and brings them to Gaza would get a stipend of 10,000 US dollars and an apartment. They told the interrogators that their instructions were to kidnap elderly women and children to cleanse the houses and kidnap as many prisoners as possible. One guy said that a dog emerged and he just simply shot the dog. They even provided uh, fairly grotesque descriptions of taking selfies with a 15-year-old girl who was then captured and taken to Gaza. Another one said that he described a woman's body lying on the floor and the commander chided him for wasting bullets on her because he was firing bullets into the body. 
and um, of course descriptions of how they systematically burned houses in these villages, incinerating the people inside. Yoni Bashan is The Australian's correspondent in Israel. You can read all Yoni's reporting plus our coverage from Israel and Gaza right now at theaustralian.com.au. I'm Sarah Lamarquin, Editor-in-Chief of Stella and host of our podcast called Something to Talk About. Every weekend we publish a new episode where you'll hear compelling personalities, strong opinions and thought-provoking conversations. I wanted to be able to do it in my time when I was ready and speak my truth when I was ready. The topic of when do I become a mum, that is in my mind 24-7. Search for Something to Talk About wherever you listen to your podcasts.